welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. Today we're going to talk about a hot topic in the world of functional medicine, and that is thyroid conditions. I've got expert Dr. Michael Ruscio on the show today to take a deep dive for us into all things thyroid, including the clinical definitions of a frank hypothyroid condition versus subclinical hypothyroidism, or what we often think of as a thyroid dysfunction. He will highlight who will respond best and who won't to thyroid medications, the implications of autoimmune thyroid conditions, one of the most commonly diagnosed conditions on the rise today, how your antibody levels are influenced by supplements such as selenium, vitamin D, CoQ10, and whether or not iodine is indeed something that you should consider if you do have a thyroid condition. Dr. Ruscio also takes a deep dive into the areas of digestion, which is crucial uh, for thyroid health. Uh, he's an absolute wealth of knowledge and does a phenomenal job of sifting through uh, all of the research as well as dispelling many of the common myths that many practitioners get caught up in. So real pleasure to have him on the show. Check out my layups and my performance hacks at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And I hope you enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Ruscio, doctor, researcher, author, and health enthusiast. He practices functional medicine with an emphasis on natural and nutritional solutions. Dr. Ruscio gives smart, busy people who are suffering from symptoms of chronic illness simple steps to get better and get on with their lives. Specializing in autoimmune, thyroid, and digestive disorders, Dr. Ruscio has spoken at the SIBO Symposium Summit, PaleoFX, Ancestral Health Symposium, Sean Croxton's Digestive Sessions, as well as many other international conferences and top health podcasts. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. Well, listen, I'd love to, if you could kick things off our discussion here on thyroid and thyroid conditions with maybe a bit of a 30,000 foot view, you know, just so we can get everyone on the same page uh, before we really dig into the topic. So could you give us some definitions of what is frank hypothyroid condition versus, you know, what we consider a thyroid dysfunction? Right. And that's actually a very important and I think timely question because as the amount of information regarding thyroid and, and hypothyroid and thyroid disease is increasing on the internet, people are becoming progressively misinformed. There, there's some, some great information that, that's being released on the internet, but unfortunately, I think there's probably an equal amount of helpful as there is harmful information being circulated on the internet. So it's important that we get clear on some definitions and, and then also how to navigate the issue of thyroid. And, and why that's important really foundationally is because whether you're a provider or a patient, you want to navigate your healthcare as efficiently as possible. And when I say efficiently, I mean, we don't want you to go through many tests that are unnecessary or restrictive diets that you don't need to be on or take supplements that you don't need to get to the end result. We want you to try to get there as efficiently as possible. And this does make a fairly sizable difference when you look at some of the patients and some of the recommendations that they're that they're being mandated, they end up going to quite extreme lengths in terms of very restrictive diets where they almost fall into this 
pseudo-orthorexia where they're afraid of food and they're on the other side of thousands of dollars of lab testing and literally taking handfuls of supplements. And you can obtain very impressive clinical results with doing quite a bit less than that. And and so I make that that important distinction early on in the conversation because I think there is quite a bit of excess in terms of recommendations for improving one's thyroid health on the internet. And while I think they're mostly well-intentioned, we can really do a better job in terms of efficiency. And, and so that's a great transition into defining what is true hypothyroidism. And I'll just and, say to here, Mike, as well, like jumping oh, sure. in, um, you know, 100%, and I really, that's something that I see a lot in clinical practice. And that's one of the reasons why I think your work is so great, because you really kind of cut through a lot of this stuff. So yeah, sorry to jump in there, but just keep going. I think that's a really important point, because it is something that definitely comes up a lot for me in clinical practice. No problem. And thank you. I, I appreciate that. And yes, if you're seeing patients, this is something that you're definitely seeing. Um, so it, it's first important to distinguish if someone is truly hypothyroid. And true, or actually, let me even take a, a bigger step back and, and first give people what can be some helpful symptoms in trying to establish if you're at risk for hypothyroid or if you're not. Because the symptoms of hypothyroidism are, are very nonspecific, meaning they're very broad, they're kind of vague. So there are some symptoms that can help give a patient or a provider a better indication that they may have true hypothyroidism. And this is based on a study entitled Hypothyroid Symptoms and the Likelihood of Overt Thyroid Failure, a Population-Based Case Control Study. And what this study essentially did was correlated what symptoms were the most predictive of having true hypothyroidism, or as they termed it in this study, overt thyroid failure. Now, they found that fatigue and dry skin were the two most important, and there were about 13 total symptoms. Fatigue, dry skin, a feeling of something being stuck in the throat, difficulty swallowing, front of the neck or anterior neck pain, wheezing, shortness of breath, palpitations or running a racing heart, constipation, hair loss, dry skin, restlessness, mood swings, tiredness, and vertigo. So that's a lot of symptoms, but it's important to mention that if someone reports three or more of those, there was a significant probability that someone would be hypothyroid, especially autoimmune-induced hypothyroid, and we'll, we'll define that, I think, more thoroughly in a moment. Um, but if fatigue was not present or if dry skin was not present, then hypothyroidism was fairly unlikely. So that's just a symptomatic definition, Mark, and, and I'll pause there before I jump into the lab work definition if you want to uh, offer anything there. Yeah, no, for sure. I think yeah, jump right into the labs because I think that's a great uh, great place for people to start and just symptom-based is, is terrific. Okay, so the symptoms would be the first step. And then fortunately, to diagnose true hypothyroidism, it's fairly straightforward. You want to look at a blood test that will examine TSH and potentially T4. Now, TSH usually shouldn't be above 4.5. That, that's the conventional range. And, and that's probably the most important marker. Now, you hear debate regarding if you need to have T4. And I'm sorry, technically it's free T4. So there's, there's two different ways you can test 
this blood test of T4. It can be regular T4 or what's also known as protein bound or free T4. And so you want to use free T4. So TSH and T4, and you hear debate in the natural health community that um, you, you need more than TSH. However, if you look at some of the lab data, you see that there's quite a bit of variability in the testing accuracy for free T4, which may be one of the reasons why TSH is so much more closely looked at is because TSH may be more accurate, may be more sensitive and specific than T4 or free T4. But to determine if someone is truly hypothyroid, it's actually quite simple. If they have TSH that is out of the reference range high, and this is the conventional reference range, paired with T4 that is out of the reference range low, then that diagnoses someone as being hypothyroid. And those people will likely need medication. Now, the degree of the elevation is important. Uh, if someone's TSH is one point above the reference cutoff, so if it's 5.5, then there, it's it's as it's not as strong of a case of hypothyroidism, and your doctor may elect for the wait and see approach. Um, but to diagnose someone as truly hypothyroid, it's fairly straightforward. According to the, the conventional ranges, you'll need to see high TSH paired with low T4. Now, there's also this in between, which is subclinical hypothyroid, and this is where you have a true elevation. Of, or you have an elevation outside of the reference range high of TSH and a normal T4. So this is, for some people, a bit of a quandary because they're saying, well, my TSH suggests I'm hypothyroid, but my T4 is normal. What do I do? And while there's not complete agreement on what to do in those cases, there are some nuances that help us uh, navigate that. The higher the TSH is, the more likely someone will need and benefit from thyroid hormone replacement medication. Usually, if the TSH is above 10, then someone may respond well to thyroid hormone medication and may be a candidate for thyroid hormone medication. There's also an age-associated gradient of TSH that's important to keep in mind, meaning the older you get, the more normal it is to have a slight elevation of your TSH. So if TSH shouldn't be above 4.5, if you see a 7 in someone who is 30, then that's a bit more concerning than a TSH of 7 in someone that's 65. Gotcha. So it's important, to, it's important to factor in the age-associated gradient with this. Now, the majority of subclinical hypothyroid cases actually spontaneously remit, which is which is good to know, meaning they spontaneously go back into normal. However, if you look at another part of the thyroid assessment, the thyroid antibodies, that can help predict how likely someone is to progress from subclinical hypothyroid all the way to true hypothyroid. So the other component of a thyroid evaluation is thyroid antibodies. And thyroid antibodies test for thyroid autoimmunity, which is essentially a process wherein your immune cells attack your thyroid gland, damage the gland, and over time the gland loses its ability to produce hormone. This can be assessed via two blood tests, TPO, which is for thyroid peroxidase antibodies, or TG, which is for thyroglobulin antibodies. And 
the higher the levels of the antibodies when someone is diagnosed as subclinical hypothyroid, and the higher the levels of their TSH when someone is diagnosed, the worse their prognosis, right? And that, that makes sense, right? If, if someone presents to their doctor for the first time and you're trying to determine, is this person a case of mild, moderate, or severe thyroid impairment, the more severely elevated or, or the, the more severe the skewing of their lab work, that is more prognostic of a more severe case. It's important to keep that in mind because sometimes I think only in trying to help people in, especially in alternative circles, we rush into a diagnosis and we rush to action. And unfortunately, what that can do is cause overtreatment and, and certainly make people become more fearful than they actually need to be. So I recommend not looking at these things like a light switch, either on or off, but rather looking at these on a gradient of, yes, you have hypothyroidism or you have thyroid autoimmunity. However, when we look at your levels, we can say you're low risk, moderate risk, or high risk, and you use that to craft a treatment plan and decisions, um, you know, tailored based upon their level of risk. Yeah, very well said and definitely something that I see often in clinical practice. And of course, you know, when we think of autoimmune conditions, we tend to think of the gut. Um, so can you walk us through some of the common digestive conditions that are perhaps associated with the autoimmune thyroid condition? So this is an area that's very interesting and, and we're learning a lot more about. Um, I, I think it, it's been something that in natural medicine or functional medicine or alternative medicine, however you want to describe it, we've known that there's been a connection between the gut and many other systems of the body, and that definitely includes the immune system. And many clinicians have probably noticed when advising their patients on interventions that improve gut health, whether it be a elimination diet or doing something to correct some type of dysbiosis in the gut, they'll see not only symptoms improve in a patient, but also a given immune condition improve. So there, there is a connection between the immune system and the gut. And there's a couple examples that may be the most notable here. Maybe the most interesting is a study that was recently published. And this study took a group of patients with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or, or SIBO as it's called for short. And this is a condition where there is an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestines, and it can cause gas, bloating, constipation, loose stools, abdominal pain. And they, this group of researchers wanted to see what other conditions were present that put people at risk for the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And they looked at things such as acid-suppressing uh, acid suppressing um, medication use, the use of immunosuppressive drugs, intestinal surgery, and out of all the factors they examined, they found that being hypothyroid and untreated or being on thyroid medication were the two strongest risk factors that predicted the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So there's definitely a connection between the intestines, and in this case, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and the thyroid. Exactly why that relationship is there, we don't know just yet. And I can offer some, some speculation in a moment if you'd like, but let me touch on two others that I think are important that illustrate the gut immune and gut thyroid connection. There was one study that took a group of patients that had 
Hashimoto's or the, this, this thyroid autoimmune condition and that also had H. pylori. And H. pylori is a bacterium that can colonize the stomach. It may or may not be pathogenic. The, the jury is, is a little bit out on that. But this group of researchers treated half of the patients for the H. pylori and did not treat the other half. All the while, they monitored their thyroid autoimmunity. In the patients that were treated for the H. pylori bacteria, there was a significant improvement in their thyroid autoimmunity, whereas there was no improvement in the patients that did not have the H. pylori treated. Additionally, there was one case study published where they showed that in treating blastocystis hominins, which is a, a protozoa, which you could maybe describe it like a advanced bacteria, this patient had a uh, this protozoal infection of blastocystis hominins, and after treatment of this infection, they found an improvement in thyroid autoimmunity, an improvement in general symptoms, and also a reduction in the amount of thyroid hormone medication that was required. So there's there's definitely a connection between the gut and the immune system, and also this is sometimes overlooked, but probably equally as important, or, or maybe not quite equally as important, but also important, is when improving one's gut health, you'll not only see an improvement in the autoimmunity, you'll also likely see an improvement in someone's global symptoms, so their, their symptoms in general. Additionally, they oftentimes will need less medication, probably predominantly because they're better absorbing the medication, and now they need a lesser dose. Yeah, that's very well said, and I know that you know the topic of you know the microbiome and is, is very hot at the moment. And I actually recently came back from an immunology conference where you know oftentimes the conclusions from a lot of the research community is you know ends up being sort of more fiber, more prebiotics, more carbs to to help to build up this quote unquote good bacteria. And of course, you know I've had some reservations with this approach for for some time, and I you know recently heard your talk at AHS last year, so. Um, you know, without going on too big of a tangent, can you can you share some of your insights into into that uh, topic? Yeah, I'd love to. And and you're you're right on, Mark. Where there, you know, I think there are some easy to arrive at misconceptions regarding the microbiota, which is just the the world of bacteria that live in your gut. There, I mean, there's there's numerous microbiotas, but in in this context, we're talking about the gut. So the, the gut microbiota, the microbiota that lives in your gut, and I think that the fundamental flaw in the in the contemporary thinking is that we we know that bacteria can be good, and so the thinking is that we need to feed bacteria because more healthy bacteria equals a healthier host. But the thing that's been left out of this this thinking is something that is revealed when you look at the clinical studies, which is it's not always the bacteria driving someone's health. Sometimes it's someone's health that's causing a skewing of the bacterial population. So treating the underlying health condition actually improves the bacteria in the host. And you see this reflected in clinical literature because what you see is in many cases, not in all, but I think the majority of the data shows that in people who are sick, they oftentimes feel better when they undergo approaches that starve, trim, or prune back bacteria rather than interventions that feed bacteria. And this is clearly evident when you look at things uh, most notably in 
inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome studies, when you look at what happens when patients use either lower carb or lower FODMAP diets or use agents that are antibacterial in nature and you see quite impressive improvements, whereas when those same patient populations undergo interventions like higher fiber diets and prebiotic supplementation or, or programs that feed bacteria, sometimes they benefit, but the majority of studies you know, lean toward there being some reactions. And it may be because the immune system in the gut in these people are, is not well calibrated to handle lots of bacteria. So when you try to force feed more bacteria into those people, you actually irritate their immune system. And you see this in some of the literature where these interventions, for example, when, when patients with Crohn's disease go on a high FODMAP diet, which is a diet high in prebiotics, which feed bacteria, they actually see increased inflammation and a near doubling of their symptom scores. Um, so th I think there's a big disconnect between the research community that's looking at a lot of this information academically and the clinical literature, which is looking at what happens when you perform said intervention with the group of patients. When you look at the clinical literature, you see that the, the theory that just feeding, feeding, feeding bacteria in the gut actually makes a lot of people worse. Some people will get better with that, but unfortunately, I think the sicker someone is, the more likely that a feeding approach is to cause them to have a bit of a regression. 100%. And as you, as you mentioned, I mean, obviously worsening dysbiosis and the likelihood of things like SIBO and et cetera. So it's, uh, it's definitely one of those ones where the boots on the ground clinician is, is seeing things in a bit of a different light and trying to find that middle ground, as you mentioned, between sort of the research and actually the clinical application. Um, now, we talk about, you know, autoimmune thyroid obviously being so common. Uh, supplementation in autoimmune thyroid is definitely, um, you know, a hot topic, whether it's things like selenium, things like vitamin D, uh, or even iodine. Um, I know I've thrown a couple things out there at you, but could you, could you touch on those and whether we're seeing benefit or potential aggravation? Definitely. And, and so these are these are areas where I think we have some good and, and impressive clinical literature. Uh, and, and I should maybe briefly mention that there there has been one study in particular looking at diet and thyroid autoimmunity that was noteworthy. And this study showed that by adhering to a lower carbohydrate diet, and, and when I say lower, I don't mean going all the way to extremely low, like a ketogenic diet, just a moderate carbohydrate restriction where people reduce breads, cereals, pastas, rices, and fruits, and focused on healthy sources of meat, fat, and vegetables, they showed about a 40% reduction in thyroid autoimmunity. So, um, you know, certainly we see some simple dietary approaches that restrict some of, of the carbohydrates that also may feed gut bugs actually are helpful for thyroid autoimmunity. And in this study, they also saw improvements in body composition. But to the note of, of different nutrients or, or dietary supplements, there's some good evidence for selenium, vitamin D, magnesium, and CoQ10. Selenium probably has the most press regarding thyroid autoimmunity. And <laughs> like many things, it's important to have a tempered position because it's easy to fall into extreme ways of thinking. When you look at some of the high-level scientific data regarding selenium, systematic reviews, namely there's been two or three systematic reviews with meta-analyses that have shown no consistent benefit 
from selenium supplementation for thyroid autoimmunity. Now, that may cause clinicians or, or patients listening to this or reading this to bat an eye. And this is where the details are important. When you look at these meta-analyses with a more critical eye, you see that there are some trials that administer selenium as a treatment for thyroid autoimmunity for three months, others for six months, and then others for 12 months or longer. When you pool all of these studies, you do not see a significant benefit on thyroid autoimmunity. However, when you look at the studies that administer selenium for three months to six months, you see that's when selenium has benefit. Three months, six months, and then after six months, the benefit tends to drop off. Why this is important and why this is relevant is because it illustrates to us a practical and hopefully pragmatic approach to supplementation, which is using selenium as a short-term nutritional support, potentially to replete a, a, a pseudo-deficiency, and then discontinuing. And it's important to keep this in mind because what often happens is people read that selenium is good for thyroid autoimmunity, and then they take it in clinical doses every day for the rest of their life. And that's probably not a good idea. Now, there's also a study, a couple of studies in vitamin D, and using vitamin D supplementation at, at reasonable doses that would equate to a maintenance dose of, of maybe roughly around 2,000 IUs a day, even in patients that are already somewhat vitamin D replete, actually shows benefit for thyroid autoimmunity. And what's important in, in this one study in particular that I'm mentioning is the researchers put patients on thyroid hormone for six months before starting vitamin D. Why that's important is because thyroid hormone medication has been shown to decrease thyroid autoimmunity. So it's important that we account for that. And if we truly wanted to be objective and establish if, if vitamin D improves thyroid autoimmunity, what we would not want to do is start someone on thyroid hormone and vitamin D at the same time. And this is something that would understandably happen in the real world. Susan Smith becomes diagnosed with hypothyroid. She goes to her doctor. Her doctor puts her on Synthroid. She goes on the internet, starts reading about it, and reads that vitamin D could be helpful, goes on vitamin D at the same time. Or maybe her natural doctor puts her on vitamin D at the same time. She retests her antibodies four months later, and her antibodies get better. And then her natural doctor says, aha, see, it was a vitamin D. But if you didn't know that thyroid medication also has been shown to decrease thyroid autoimmunity, then you may not understand that that result might be skewed. And so what this study accounted for was the impact that vitamin D has on thyroid autoimmunity. And they waited six months until starting the subjects on vitamin D. They found that even after someone had already been on thyroid hormone medication and seen the the uh, accompanying improvement in their thyroid autoimmunity, there was additional improvement in thyroid autoimmunity when going on vitamin D. So there's definitely a good case to be made for vitamin D supplementation, even in those who are replete. The studies in this subject, I believe, already had um, you know, 20, uh, gosh, is it milligrams per nanoliter? It's, it's the United States units that, that they were using, and they found that the subjects had I mean, it's debatable as whether or not 20 is optimal, but they weren't grossly deficient. And so they saw a benefit from vitamin D supplementation in, in that group. Um, anything you want to add there, Mark, before I move on? 
I mean, I just think it's a great comment in terms of having a really tailored approach for folks who, if they are on medications, of actually applying things like supplements in the right manner, which you just mentioned there with vitamin D being best applicable, you know, six months afterwards. And even just circling back to your comments around things like selenium, which, you know, again, in clinical practice, you get patients coming in with, with literally bags of supplements, you know, five, six, seven, eight things that they're taking. And, you, you know, you start to wonder, well, surely we can do this in a bit more efficient manner. And, you know, as you mentioned, normally, you know, eight or 12 weeks on a supplement, sometimes maybe even six months. But after that, we definitely need to be re-examining things. So I think those are both great comments. So, you know, I'm not sure if we can now, uh, you know, jump into like the magnesium, the CoQ10, some of your observations there on the autoimmune and thyroid. Sure, sure. So there's one study in particular that looked at a combination of magnesium, selenium, and CoQ10, and they showed an improvement in thyroid autoimmunity and also a improvement in thyroid echogenicity, which is the, the reading that you get from an ultrasound is, is an echo pattern. It's kind of like the sonar that, that a bat uses to communicate. So the same thing as an ultrasound. And when an ultrasound tech makes or takes an examination of the thyroid gland, the healthier it is, the, the more echo that you'll have. But, but the, the echo gets thrown off when there's autoimmunity in the gland and that causes scarring and fibrosis. And so there, there's a different echo in something that's hollow compared to something that's dense. And so they, they showed essentially through the ultrasound reading an improvement in the thyroid gland structure. So selenium, magnesium, CoQ10, all helpful. And you may not need to take any of these really in the long term, but rather are something that should be used initially while you track your thyroid autoimmunity. And that's that's maybe a, a good transition to sneak in something that I think is very, very important regarding thyroid autoimmunity. And the, the data here aren't complete. This is an area that I think we're somewhat... It's important to understand that thyroid autoimmunity should also be quantified for a risk uh, stratification, just like blood sugar would be. Your blood sugar shouldn't be above 99. That is your fasting blood glucose. If someone comes in at 104, that's very different than if someone comes in at 224. Unfortunately, sometimes this thinking isn't applied to thyroid autoimmunity, and I think that it should be. Now, there, there's been a couple of studies, one most notably, that show that if, if someone has a level of, of TPO antibody, and, and it's the TPO antibody that we have the most data regarding. But if someone has a TPO antibody below 500, they're at minimal risk for progression of thyroid disease. And there have also been some other sh studies that, that hint at something similar, where if you're in the low hundreds, you're at um, minimal risk. And if you're in the high hundreds or even the thousands, you're at elevated risk. It's important to realize that a few of the studies have, if, if you read just the, the abstracts of some of these studies, you'll see conclusions like people who have TPO antibodies above 100 have poorer psychological well-being. However, when you read the actual study, you see, and I'm, I'm referencing one in particular that made that conclusion, when you read the actual study, you see that they were defining positivity for Hashimoto's as having TPO antibodies 100 or above. So what they were actually saying is those who have Hashimoto's, TPO 100 or above, yep. are at increased risk for poor psychological well-being. When you look at the average level of TPO antibodies in those subjects, the average level was 1,122. It's just massive, so, massive number. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And most clinicians will probably notice that if someone is paying no attention to their diet or their lifestyle, they may come in with a TPO antibody that's 6, 7, 8, 9, 12, 14, 1800. And after they've improved their diet, improved their lifestyle, potentially repleted vitamin D deficiency, used some selenium, magnesium, CoQ10, and now they're feeling better. You repeat the antibody profile, and their TPO antibodies are in the low hundreds, 100, 200, 300, 400. I would consider that a clinical win if you're in the low hundreds. Why that's important is because understanding that can help prevent you as a clinician from advising on overtreatment or you as a patient from engaging in overtreatment or feeling like you're not healthy yet, even though you've made some steps towards your health, you're feeling better. So it's important to keep that in mind that TPO antibodies in the low hundreds puts you at, at a very minimal risk and is likely associated with a clinical win. 100%. I mean, very well said. And of course, the other piece of the autoimmune thyroid is this uh, is iodine supplementation and whether that's putting folks at risk um, of autoimmune thyroid. Can you comment on that? Yes. And, and thank you for mentioning iodine because I would have been remiss if we didn't have a chance <laughs> no to worries. talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, I think, controversy regarding iodine. And, and it, it almost seems like there's two camps on the internet. One camp that is very pro-iodine and another camp that is a bit more cautious or reserved or, or even outright says that iodine is bad for thyroid autoimmunity. Now, we went through a pretty comprehensive review of the literature on this issue. I approached it probably more so coming out of a camp of belief from my earlier training in functional medicine that iodine was like a cure-all for thyroid. However, my opinion was was quite drastically swayed when you look at the literature. There is a overwhelming amount of studies showing that when iodine is added to the food supply, you see hypothyroidism and thyroid autoimmunity in that population increase. And very, very clearly documented. Now, that's an observational study, and that's not the highest level of science. But when you have an overwhelming number of observational studies, I mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in all different countries, all across the world, all showing the same thing, then you start to make uh, a pretty good case. However, we have even better evidence that has put patients with thyroid autoimmunity on a low iodine diet and seen improvements in the thyroid autoimmunity. And there's even one study, there may be two, where they took patients who um, had thyroid autoimmunity, they put them on a low iodine diet, saw improvements in their thyroid autoimmunity, and then put them back on a regular diet and saw their thyroid autoimmunity get worse. So we definitely have not only an overwhelming amount of observational data that suggests that iodine is dangerous or potentially dangerous in high quantities for the thyroid and for thyroid autoimmunity, but also some clinical trials that isolate to to weed out confounding factors that also show that we should be careful with iodine. Now, does this mean that you should become an, an anti-iodine crusader? No, it's not to paint this like a like a dichotomy where it's either good or bad. It's just that Using iodine supplementation if your thyroid health is, is impaired for most people is probably not a great idea. 450 micrograms through the diet seems to be a pretty safe sweet spot. 
um, or keeping with the RDA where you don't exceed about 1,100 to 1,200 micrograms a day is probably a a, you know, a pretty safe play and a, and a pretty good idea. Uh, so, you know, those are some of the most salient things regarding iodine. Iodine does have benefit for conditions, especially like fibrocystic breast disease, but for um, for for thyroid autoimmunity may not be a great play. This also may be why some patients with thyroid autoimmunity report benefit from an autoimmune paleo diet. An autoimmune paleo diet pulls out many allergens, but also many of those allergens like breads, milks, and regular table salt are all foods that are iodized or have iodine added to them. Uh, also, eggs actually is, is, is cut out on that diet, and eggs are a, a rich source of iodine. So the autoimmune paleo diet is inadvertently a low iodine diet. This may be what causes benefit for, for some people with thyroid autoimmunity. That's awesome. I'm, I'm going in a few different directions here. I mean, one of them is basically that, uh, you know, we don't test typically in a traditional setting for thyroid antibodies. And one of the most common thing people get if they go to just a health food shop is, like, as you mentioned, folks telling them to just supplement with iodine because it's a cure-all for everything. So, you know, as you mentioned, that's something to definitely look out for. Um, and of course, you know, if you are, you mentioned eggs. Now, I'm just saying, in terms of a low iodine diet, getting it from your diet, what are some of your favorite, uh, you know, foods for people to be including? If we perhaps even exclude eggs as, as perhaps on the autoimmune paleo type diet, are there other foods that you, you like to include for folks? To obtain iodine? Yeah. Well, I mean, eggs is a good source. If people tolerate dairy, then dairy is another. Um, grains, but you have to be careful with grains because many people. Or some people, I shouldn't say many, but some people may be gluten intolerant um, or, or just generally grain intolerant also. Eggs is a good source, as is any type of sea vegetables, as is fish. So those are some of the, the better sources. And it's pretty easy just to go online and, and do a search for top sources of iodine, you know, top food sources of iodine. Look at those and cross-reference those with things that are allowed on whatever diet plan that you're using or foods that just appeal to you or foods that you know you tolerate well and include those in your diet. But I'd be careful not to try to ingest copious amounts of dietary iodine because if, if you have an excess of iodine intake, especially if you're using lots of, you know, kelps and seaweeds, mm -hmm. then, you know, those have been documented to cause hypothyroidism or thyroid autoimmunity. And this is probably why we see a, a high incidence of this reported in Japanese populations who have a high intake of this from a dietary source. So it's not just to say, oh, it's because it's, it's iodine being added to the food and water supply. And it's, you know, maybe someone would say it's, it's not natural iodine, it's being added to the food supply. But if people eat it from fresh kelp, or, or what have you, then it will be healthy for you. Well, we don't see this in many of the Asian populations, especially in Japan. We actually see a higher incidence of hypothyroidism and thyroid autoimmunity. Yeah, so I still have to abide by the lower uh, total iodine intake, which is which is great. And of course, you you mentioned some foods that sort of dovetails into other areas that are common in the thyroid dysfunction world, which are things like gluten and dairy, which you mentioned, and of course, soy as well. Can you comment on some of those and what the research is telling us? Well, gluten certainly... Is, is probably the, the dietary recommendation that, that people hear the most. And you know, I certainly think there is some evidence for avoiding, you know, clearly there's some evidence for avoiding gluten um, in in those who are thyroid autoimmune. But I think it's important for people to, to realize that you don't necessarily need to avoid gluten to the level to which 
a patient with celiac disease would. And, and you know, there, there's two sides of this. One, one side is wanting to do everything you can to optimize your health. The other is realizing that there's a, a law of diminishing returns where you may see 9% of the improvement just by reducing the amount of dietary gluten that you consume. When you try to go that additional 10% where you become a fanatic about gluten and you stop going out and you get stressed out when you have to eat out with your friends or what have you, you're probably putting yourself at a net loss of health because now the amount of stress is counteracting any additional benefit from that additional avoidance of gluten. Now, some people are very, very sensitive and they have to be very avoidant of gluten. That's fine. But there are many people that can tolerate some gluten or don't really notice much of a reaction when they have it. And for those people, I do not recommend trying to live like you have celiac disease or a very severe intolerance to gluten because you're probably, again, putting yourself at more of a health disadvantage because of all the stress that is produced by trying to live at that level of a very strict I, um, gluten avoidance. And then regarding soy, um, you know, I, I can't say I've looked very deeply into literature on soy as it pertains to thyroid. I would simply have someone perform an, an elimination and reintroduction with soy. And if they notice a improvement when they take it out of their diet and a regression when they add it back in, then they would probably want to avoid soy and gluten to a correspondent degree to which they notice they have an intolerance. I mean, that's just a great comment on the kind of going 90% or 85-15 or whatever you want to call it because, you know, that I definitely see that extra 10% of people really trying to adhere um, 100% of their lifestyle absolutely creates more stress in, in their lives. You see it when patients come in and the trickle-down effects, um, are, you know, are enormous, as, as you sort of mentioned there. So if we stay on that stress side of things... What type of role is stress playing in, in thyroid dysfunction, um, and, and how does it trickle down to impacting the thyroid? You know, stress may, may impart negative impacts on thyroid autoimmunity or autoimmunity in general, in part because of its impact on prolactin. And the exact mechanism that ties prolactin to autoimmunity, I'm not absolutely clear on. But what I can tell you is that stress can decrease prolactin. And there have been some studies showing just a marginal, um, so, so stress can increase prolactin and just marginal increases in prolactin have been correlated with poor autoimmunity, uh, specifically thyroid autoimmunity. So, I mean, it's not really a hard sell here where stress isn't going to make anything better. Uh, and the mechanisms for why that occurs is probably multifold. It's just important, I think, to, you know, back to our, our uh, previous topic of, of gluten and, and dietary avoidance, um, don't make your life stressful by trying to adhere to that level of perfection with a diet because oftentimes that becomes more destructive than it does productive. And, you know, there's just one other thing that shot into my head, Mark, I wanted to mention, which is coming back to the earlier point of thyroid assessment. You, you hear about these very in-depth thyroid assays where you test TSH and free T4 and T3 and free T3 and reverse T3, and you look at your T4 to reverse T3 ratio or your T3 to reverse T3 ratio, and I haven't found those to be useful or to be needed because you really want to make a distinction which is, is someone hypothyroid and they need medication? If yes, they need to go on medication. They may also need to improve 
other factors in their life that, that are um, detracting from their health. If someone isn't hypothyroid but is exhibiting hypothyroid-like symptoms, and I say that in air quotes, mm -hmm. because oftentimes people have a gut problem that's causing symptoms and someone thinks those symptoms are thyroid, but they're actually not. Um, so when someone thinks they have hypothyroid symptoms, you know, in, in air quotes, but they're not hypothyroid, in most cases, the solution to the problem is not your thyroid. So further testing your thyroid hormone metabolites doesn't tell you where the problem is coming from. And I just want to be clear in, in people because unfortunately what I think happens is people have their desire to feel better preyed upon or exploited. And the thinking is, oh, if I could just get this additional testing from my doctor or maybe I'll even pay out of pocket for it, this will finally tell me what I can do to feel better. And in my experience, for the majority of people, all that additional thyroid analysis does is quantify further a symptom but not the problem, but not the cause of the problem. And so I haven't, I used to do those in every patient, those, those very in-depth thyroid assays, and I haven't been doing them for years, and we get equal or better results. So, um, you know, if you're a doctor ordering these, this is certainly not an attack on you, or if you're a patient and your doctor has ordered these, this is certainly not to say that your doctor is, is you know, doing something bad or, or what have you. But I, I think now that we've had a chance to test some of these theories, it's time that we start updating some of these things and we start cutting the fat, so to speak, so as to really consolidate to the testing, the treatment that is most necessary. So again, it's not a criticism. These are things that I think the field needed to do to eventually learn what to keep and what to discard. And I think the, the highly in-depth thyroid assays don't offer a lot in the way of clinical utility, so they can be discarded and we can th instead focus on where the non-responsive symptoms that may look like thyroid symptoms are coming from and focus on hunting for the cause and not get distracted by trying to quantify a symptom that's a derivative of the cause. That's great. I mean, that's definitely something that's really refreshing to hear because it's something that I've noticed in clinical practice as well of running all these tests and just not being able to, you know, using that sort of reductionist uh, mentality of really getting to the bottom of things. And, you know, so on that, on that note, what are some of the other markers, whether we talk blood sugar balance or blood lipids, inflammation, you know, what are some other things that you might consider if you were running some panels, you know, in a, in a cost effective and efficient way that might elucidate some of those root causes? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, first, this probably goes without saying, but it's important to mention that we want to make sure that someone is getting enough sleep, getting exercise, that they're not under copious amounts of stress. And if they are, they're at least trying to take some steps to, to mitigate that. And then also that their diet's in good order. And, you know, someone may try a paleo-like diet or, or at least a diet devoid of processed foods that's focusing on uh, all fresh foods. That's a good place to start. They may also want to consider the autoimmune paleo diet or the low FODMAP diet, low FODMAP, especially if they have many digestive symptoms. And if they still haven't gotten any results there uh, or then, then they may want to consider a gut evaluation. And in my mind, it's, it's not necessarily about what tests, but what what system of the body should you look at next? And the gut is, is not a guarantee to be the cause of the problem, but gut problems are very common. They can interfere not only with your absorption of thyroid hormone medication if you are on it, Gut problems can also drive thyroid autoimmunity, and gut problems can certainly cause symptoms that look like symptoms of hypothyroidism. 
So because of all those factors, I think one of the best things to do after you've gone through your dietary and lifestyle items, like we mentioned a moment ago, would be to have a thorough gut evaluation. Also, I mean, if you've been tested for hypothyroidism and you're hypothyroid, get yourself on medication. Um, but if you've done all of those things and you're still not feeling well, then a gut evaluation would be an important next step. And at the same time, you may also, if you're on thyroid medication and you haven't responded, if you're on a T4 only medication like levothyroxine or Synthroid, you may want to try adding in a T3 fraction like Cytomel or try a medication that has both T4 and T3 in it like Naturethroid or Westroid or a similar formula because that may be the one missing piece for some people. One study showed that about 50% of patients prefer a T4, T3 combination, whereas about 20% of patients prefer T4 only. Now, also, if you're hypothyroid and you're on medication and you're not responding to that medication, again, you may want to investigate your gut because that may be the cause of the problem. But also, if you have ongoing digestive issues like ulcers or H. pylori or SIBO or IBS and you're, you're struggling to manage those and, and you're looking, it's looking like you're going to have more of a long-term sort of treatment plan for your gut and you may be dealing with some level of gut impairment for a long period of time, you may want to try a liquid form of thyroid hormone. Most namely, there's a medication called tyrosine, and studies have been done in patients, most namely with H. pylori infections, and they've shown much better outcomes when using the liquid thyroid hormone because it's much more easily absorbed. And if you have active digestive impairments like H. pylori or other infections or ulcers or SIBO or inflammatory bowel disease, then you may not be able to absorb the tablet form and you may do much better from a uh, absorption perspective when using this liquid. And it's not liquid in true sense, it's liquid in a gel capsule, but it's very easy to absorb. And that for some patients may also make a big difference. Terrific, Mike. I mean, that's great. Um, you do such a great job of kind of parsing through all this complicated stuff and being able to give people some really, you know, efficient and evidence-based um, advice, which is phenomenal. Um, but I want to be here respectful of your time. Uh, and maybe in the last question here, shifting over to more of a personal question, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, yourself, your morning routine. You know, are you a coffee guy? How do you, how do you start your day? Lately, I've been um, doing intermittent fasting, so I, I haven't really been eating until midday. And yes, in the morning, typically, I wake up. If it's a, if it's a clinic day, then I'm right into the clinic uh, first thing in the morning. If it's a research and writing day, then I'm at my home office, and I typically start off the day either seeing patients or just kind of combing through this literature or writing about things that I've read in the literature. Uh, and... I'll oftentimes, after a couple hours of work, you know, your brain is in need of a little bit of a break. For sure. And your mind a little bit of a boost. So I typically will will do. I'm an espresso guy, so I'll do maybe a, a, a double or a triple espresso with equal amounts of of espresso to cream, and nice. um, that that's nice. Or sometimes I do these little herbal um, 
caffeinated shots. I'm, I'm trying to wean myself off the of caffeine, but my my workload right now is is quite excessive. So I'm working to work less, but for now, caffeine is a little bit of a crutch that's uh, keeping me <laughs> keeping me going. Here. It's a tough crutch, right? It's uh, I was recently in Portugal and it was sixty five cents for an espresso. I thought, geez, that's pretty cost effective. <sighs> Oof, yeah, <laughs> awesome. Like Listen, Mike, I really appreciate you taking the time out. Where can people uh, keep in touch with your work and connect with you on uh, the interwebs and social media? Well, there, there's a number of places or, or a number of things people can follow if they'd like. Everything is really contained at, at the hub website of drrusho.com, which is D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. We have a weekly video, a weekly podcast, both of which are fully transcribed if you prefer to read. Uh, and we also have a weekly article. And for anyone listening who is a healthcare provider of any type or, or just an educated layperson who really wants to get more prescriptive and clinical with their education, we also offer something called the Future of Functional Medicine Review Clinical Newsletter, which is a monthly newsletter publication. And if you look on our website, you'll see a, a little, um, you know, purple box where you can plug in for more info on that. But that's that's where we go into some of these studies and also case studies and, and really try to put together something that's at a, a higher level up in terms of it's very clinically prescriptive, it's very evidence-based, and it's very uh, case study-based also. So, um, you know, those are, those are a few things to uh, look out for. And then I have a book that will be coming out hopefully late this year, 2017, that's all about the gut, the microbiota, and wraps everything into a self-help plan to improve the health of your gut. Phenomenal. We'll definitely include links to the website on the page that hosts the podcast here. So check that out at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. We'll be looking forward for when the book comes out as well. So thanks, Mike, for taking the time out today. Thanks again for everyone else for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. You can use the hashtag drbubspp. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes, head over to iTunes, subscribe, and give us your rating. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.